You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash milkstreet 
to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash Milk Street. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today I'm chatting with great British Bake Off champion Nadia Hussein. She tells us about making bread pudding with melted ice cream, falling asleep on a bed of nails to relax, and what happened when she asked her daughter for help making Queen Elizabeth's 90th birthday cake. I said, so what do you think I should bake the Queen? And she said, oh, that you've already baked for the Queen. And I said, no, I haven't baked for the Queen. And she said, yes, you have. Mary Berry's the Queen. And I was like, Mary Berry's the Queen of cake. The Queen is the Queen of England. Later on the show, Adam Gobnick considers fools, messes, and other desserts with amusing names. And we turn to the freezer to make the perfect crumb cake. But first, it's my interview with Anna Sortun, who brings us the story of Turkey's most prized baklava. Anna, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks, Chris. It's nice to be here. Thank you so much. You know, years ago, we were talking about a trip you made to Turkey uh, to the home of baklava, or at least the the place in the world it's most known for. And you made a comment to me, which I just want to bring back up, which you said the process of making baklava for you uh, made French pastry look lazy. (laughs) And I just think there are hundreds of French pastry chefs who are seething about that comment. But could you just, before we get into all the details, just give me a, a brief retort about why you said that? Yeah, I think I I didn't really know the finesse that was behind the baklava, but it, it's all in the phyllo dough, and it it takes a lot of energy and strong arms and practice to get the the phyllo dough so thin that you can see your hand through it when you hold it up, right. um, and it's it's quite a skill. You know, I've made puff pastry not too many times in my life, especially these days, but. Um, it, it, it makes puff pastry look like a, it's a simple process. <laughs> and that is definitely saying something. <laughs> so the baklava we're talking about, you want to define it because it's quite different than, let's say, a Greek version. Yeah, I think I always have this sort of, I don't know, metaphor where you can have a croissant here in the United States and say you're at the airport and you have a croissant and that's like your first and only croissant experience and then you get on that plane and you head to Paris and you get off and and you go into a really famous uh, French pastry shop and then you have a croissant there and then all of a sudden you realize oh my god that's a croissant and when I first went to Turkey 25 years ago I was able to go behind the scenes and see these people make the pastry and it just it just split my mind I thought I'd known what finesse and mastery of skill look like but um, I was wrong. This just uh, was something I've never seen before. So there's a town, uh, and there's a, a number of places in the town that make baklava. Just tell us a little bit about where, where in Turkey is this, what's the town like, etc. So I was invited about 25 years ago to go to a, a small town right on the border of Syria in the southeast of Turkey called Gaziantep. And I was invited to go study with a woman who her mission really was to 
to try to get me to experience and understand like a crash course in Turkish cuisine. And she was going to show me around her town of Gaziantep that was sort of the gastronomic capital of Turkey and also one of the most famous places in the world for pistachios. And she took me into a place called Imam Chadash, which is very famous for its baklava. And I got to watch the process of it. And it was uh, sort of an experience of watching generations put it together. Like on the bottom floor, there was the young kids that were sweeping the floor and tending to the cash register and wrapping up the baklavas uh, to take away. And then when we walked upstairs to the first floor kitchen, there were more like teenagers or young 20s, um, strong young men that were rolling out fresh phyllo in a wheat starch, not a corn starch, but a wheat starch. And in Gaziantep, the air, it, there's no humidity. So the starch, it's its almost like foggy in the room. They call it mm. starch fog. Um, and, and it's so thick that it's on their eyelashes and on their arms. And they're rolling out this phyllo that you can see through. It's paper thin. How do you roll out something so thin? I, I mean, I, I did see a video from there with these large wooden pins. You know, they're three or four feet long, I guess. Um, how, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, I think they have to be, I think they have to be young and strong is what they told me, um, <laughs> that it was the young and strong men that were rolling it out. But they're using, you know, when I've done it um, in myself, it's a little bit of a stretch, you know, that happens and they use these very thin rolling pins called aklava and they're, they're bigger than a dowel, but they're maybe like two inches in diameter, smaller than a French rolling pin would be. And it almost like the dough almost is stretching like a, like a streusel. And the starch is like super fine, like, like powdered sugar almost. So it doesn't absorb the same as flour. So it just gets really thin very easily with still being very strong. So you don't put holes in it, but yeah, it does take practice. They make it look very easy. So in the video I saw, they were sorting pistachios by hand. <laughs> I mean, this, this is—I mean, I was just going like, man, I, you know, sometimes I think I have a hard job, but I mean, this mound of pistachios, what are they, they're looking for pistachios that are fresher, older, what color, is, is there a particular type that's best for baklava? Yeah, so in, in Gaziantep, they usually harvest pistachios early, like a month early. And so they're slightly underripe, but their color is more intense and more green. And they're, some people say they're sweeter, but in my opinion, they're a little bit more bitter and they're kind of better in the baklava because it's soaked in syrup. It's almost like this meaty black walnut sort of flavor. There's umami in the, in the pistachios mm. as far as I'm concerned. It's a different taste from our California pistachio, but... Um, yeah, the pistachios are taken pretty seriously, and the ones that are early harvest are used for baklava because of the color, um, but also the nuance of flavor as well. And then they grind it very fine, and it and they call it bird pistachios. It's just the fact that it's ground really fine, and they use that. It's a, like a like a vibrant fern or asparagus green. You know, if you're a baklava chef or usta in Gaziantep, you have prestige. You're, you're like a doctor or a lawyer. Hmm. So then pistachios go on and then more layers. 
and then I, I didn't understand. This is baked, but it's finished on burners. Um, could you explain how it's finished? I didn't understand that. So the layers of sprinkled goat's milk butter and the fresh phyllo go in, and I should know exactly how many, but there are like 20-ish layers of the phyllo. And then lots of the finely ground, vibrant green early harvest pistachios. And then it gets cut and goes into the oven. And basically the art of the baklava is when it comes out of the oven. It comes out really hot. Um, but sometimes the bottom, they want to get the bottom a little more crisp um, and they want to get it to rise when the syrup hits it. So they put it on a burner quickly to get the bottom a little more crisp so that when they take the ladle full of hot syrup and they pour it on the very hot baklava, if they've done it right in the right amount, the whole baklava lifts out of the pan when they do it, literally like jumps out of the pan. I saw that. I was going like, wait, <laughs> could, could you take us through the first taste? Yeah, so I think for me, there is this sort of shatter in your mouth kind of feeling. And then you get this really pungent flavor from the pistachio and goat's milk butter combined. And it's almost a little gamey. It's almost a little umami-ish like a black walnut is when you combine the unripe pistachio flavor with the goat's milk butter. But then it's sort of sweet at the same time. And, you know, it is. it would be like going from that or airport croissant to the croissant in Paris going, oh, okay, <laughs> now I understand what baklava is supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm desperate to go <laughs> watch these people make baklava and, and eat as much as possible. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. That was Anna Sortoon. She's the chef owner of the restaurants Oleana, Sofra, and Sarma. Now it's time for my co-host Sarah Moult and I to tackle some of your baking questions. She's the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, here's the question. So, tortillas. I've just spent some time in L.A. having phenomenal tacos. But do you prefer corn tortillas, flour tortillas? Do you buy tortillas from the supermarket? What's the deal? Corn tortillas, I prefer. And my absolute favorite, it's one of those things, you know how when you go to a town and you, if it's on the menu, you're going to order it? For me, I mean, as long as it's in the right parts of the country, it's fish tacos. I'm always in search of the best fish taco. Tacos, I love them, but I don't make a ton of tacos at home, no. You know, when I was in L.A., we spoke to someone who didn't use a tortilla press. And I watched her and they make these incredibly large tortillas. I think they're flour tortillas, actually. But she does it like a pizza dough, right? She starts that way with her hands. But when it gets larger, she uses her forearms. And the dough flips over from one forearm to the next. It was amazing. So in about one minute, she'll take a ball of dough. And it'll and be paper it, thin. It'll be about a foot wide. And it goes onto the griddle to finish it. And it was just amazing. Wow. I mean, the food's just amazing. Do they make anyway, fish tacos? Yeah. A shrimp taco is excellent. Uh, they make all sorts of tacos, uh, you know, fried long cigar rolls filled with lamb and with a smoky sauce. And oh, dear. Just You're delicious. making me anyway. so hungry. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> anyway, all right, well, let's take a call. Moving on. Yeah. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Katie. Hi, Katie. Where are you calling from? 
I am calling from Melrose, Massachusetts. How can we help you today? Well, I have been struggling with my pie dough for a very long time. It seems that no matter what I do, this is for not a two-crust pie, a single pie, I put it in the oven and it like shrinks and disappears and looks terrible. So I feel like I've run the whole gamut of what I can do and I'm out of ideas. All right. Well, I've got a couple of ideas. I think what might be the problem is when you put the dough into the pie tin, it's very important to ease it in, not stretch it out, because it is going to naturally shrink. So you have to give it a little extra room. If you stretch it when you put it in, it's going to really shrink. Okay. Do you pierce the dough with a fork? Absolutely. So let the steam, you know, come out. I assume you're blind baking it too, right? Yes. So then I'm using ceramic pie weight. Is there a kind of pie weight that's going to make this happen more than not happen? Well, I've only ever used beans or rice, and it's worked just fine. But I'm okay. sure Chris has an opinion about this. So. Oh, yes, I do. I agree with Sarah. I would say push the dough down into the sides of the pan. But I don't think that's your problem. What's the basic recipe in terms of fat to flour for your pie dough? They're usually butter recipes. I'll give you just a few things I've found. I've had the same problem you've had. Number one, the fat to flour ratio is critical. For a cup and a quarter of flour, which is usually what you use for a single crust pie pre-baked, I would use no more than eight tablespoons of fat. Some recipes have 10. The more fat you have in it, the more likely it is to slump. Two, the most important thing is cut the fat really into the flour in the food processor. I've said this a million times. Recipes always say process until butter is pea-sized. That's nonsense. Forget it. Keep processing until you really coat the flour with the butter. By fully coating the flour, you are not going to have pockets of butter. And those pockets, when they melt in the oven, is what really makes the slumping worse. Once you fit it in the pan, as Sarah said, push down on the edge, refrigerate for 20 minutes and freeze for 20 minutes. Do both? Okay. Then put it in the oven, 375. A Pyrex pan I like best because it'll brown the bottom better, bottom rack of the oven, and use a ton of pie weights. This is something actually I didn't think of. Stella Parks mentions this. Put the aluminum foil on the pie crust, but then fill it up with weights. If you fill up the pie weights all the way to the top, you're going to have much less chance of that crust slumping. Make sure you don't take the foil off until the crust is pretty set and dry. If the dough is a little wet or it's a little moist, it'll slump. So let it set with the weights in the foil, in the crust. In the oven? In the oven, yeah. And then it'll set in place. Then take the foil off and continue baking a few minutes to get a light brown. That'll do it. Okay, good. You can tell I this is like the only thing I care about in life. <laughs> pre-baked pie pastry. Anyway, give that a shot. Katie, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need help with your pie crust or a batch of brownies, give us a call anytime. Our number, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Yeah, this is Gary calling from Ohio. Hi, Gary. How can we help you today? Well, I'm calling in regards to some old 
recipes that I have from my grandparents. Uh, my grandparents came over to the States from Salamanca, Spain back in 1920. And I've been trying to do some of the recipes. And one that's kind of a uh, comical, I guess, that's not my question, but is they're all handwritten out. And one of them that she makes um, Spanish donuts calls for six half eggshells of oil. Wow. You know, that was their measuring cups back then. Wow. But the reason I'm calling is she makes a Spanish cookie using lard. Now, my aunt, who is 92, still makes them. And she melts her lard first, where recipes similar to that in the States here would be New Mexico holiday cookies called uh, biscotti titos. They just use the lard and whip in the sugar whip um, in a solid state. What is the difference between melting the lard first and using it in a solid state? It would make the difference of a more spread, crispy cookie, which would be the melted lard, versus a more chewy, higher cookie in the creaming lard. Do you like your Mm -hmm. aunt's cookies? Um, Yes, (laughs) yes, but... She's following her mother's recipe, who was my grandmother's sister, and so a lot got lost in the translations of them. I remember my grandmother's being tall and flaky, so I've been kind of favoring using it in a solid state. Yeah, it's like creaming butter and sugar in, say, a chocolate chip cookie. If instead you melted the butter, you would get a really thin, crispy, almost greasy cookie, so... Okay. Your instinct is right. She uses basically one egg to maybe two to three cups of flour. Oh, okay. And it's just flour. And then it's the lard and the sugar. Yeah, and then some cinnamon and anison. Also, maybe a little bit of wine in there, too. Oh, that's interesting. That all sounds fine to me. Well, I didn't know really if I should use a whole egg or just an egg yolk. If you want something that's sort of chewier and richer, just the yolk. But the egg white will tend to give you a sort of crispier, lighter texture. These sound like polvorones, right? I mean, this is like a Mexican wedding cookie or something. Yeah. So that's why you have such a low proportion of fat to flour, because you have a very light, crispy, kind of crumbly cookie. By the way, leaf lard, the fat around the kidney of the pig, is what we used, uh, you know, for American pie dough for hundreds of years. It makes terrific pie pastry. Yeah. So it's actually a great ingredient mm-hmm. for baking. So sounds like a great recipe. All right. Sounds yeah, good. I, I appreciate that very much. Okay. Yeah. Thank right. you very much. Thanks, Gary. All right, Gary. Okay. Bye. Take Bye-bye. care. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, it's my conversation with great British Bake Off champion, Nadia Hussein. That's right up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. 
Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it you're reminded like oh wow Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
This is Most Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with TV host and author Nadia Hussein. She won the Great British Bake Off in 2015. Her latest cookbook is Nadia Bakes. Nadia, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you're a very interesting person. I was looking at your history and resume. You got a place at King's College London to study psychology, but never did. And, and then you ended up baking. Uh, why did you want to study psychology? Um, I suppose back then when I think about it, I was quite interested in understanding the mind. But I realized, actually, I think I was really desperate to kind of know myself. As a young woman growing up in England from a Bangladeshi home, first generation British, I think it was really hard to kind of really understand who I was. And I think that's, I think, partly the reason why I wanted to do a degree in psychology. And also, somebody once said to me that you could probably make loads of money as a psychologist. So I was like, yeah, you know, when you're 18, you're like, that's what I want to do. I want to make lots of money. (laughs) You want this is fairly personal, but you, you were married at age twenty. It was an arranged marriage. Yeah. The second day you met was your wedding day. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts about that institution, arranged marriage? Now that you've been through it, you know, arranged marriages are weird and wonderful in a bizarre sort of way. Um, and I was just this twenty-year-old who didn't go to university, and kind of thought to myself, well, actually, what's next then? You know, and and at the time, I just kind of thought, well marriage so I was like okay well I can't be bothered and you know for me it just felt like hard work I was like mom could you could you guys just do it for me I just can't be bothered um I mean I got really lucky and I think that somewhere between an arranged marriage and 16 years later three kids and way too many pets we've kind of struck this balance that really works before we get to food and the bake-off um a shock team Matt um Could you just explain what it is? Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. I love that. That is one of my favorite things. So it's a padded mat that is covered in thousands of plastic pins. Um, And I discovered this about a year and a half ago. And you have to eventually get to a point where you can lay on this bed of nails completely with bare skin. And... um, I'm quite competitive with my husband, but he's good at everything. So I thought, what can I win at? And so essentially I bought it in the hope that I could win. Um, And it turns out, turns out he's not good at laying on a bed of nails. And I am. (laughs) The reason why I initially bought it was because I get kind of on an evening when I've worked really hard, laying on my bed of nails really helps my muscles to relax. And Hmm. I can go bare skin for about 20 minutes. In in fact, I fall asleep on it. That's how hardcore I am. Hmm. I fall asleep on my bed of nails. Yep. So um, you said your mother uh, used the oven to store frying pans. Yep. You didn't realize the oven was actually used for baking, I guess, early on. Um, No. Well, we grew up in a family where it was stovetop cooking. And we always had an oven, but I just didn't know what it was used for. So it was really interesting because when I went to my first home egg class, when I was maybe 12, and I saw the teacher mixing eggs and butter and sugar, and and then she then goes and pops it into this, what I call a cupboard. And I, I said to her, Mrs. Marshall, this is, this cupboard's hot. And she said, oh, you silly girl, that's an oven. And I was like, oh, and that was when it was like a light bulb click moment for me. It was like, oh, 
she's baking a cake and I'll never that magic will never really leave me I think it was something that was that will always even now when I bake a cake sometimes the smell when I've forgotten that it's in the oven and I go downstairs and I get that kind of slap in the face of butter and sugar and eggs I think oh wow but yeah my mum I remember going home that day and ripping everything out of the cupboard out of the I still call it a cupboard <laughs> um the oven and saying mum you lied to me all these years and I'm like trying to turn this oven on that was sticky shut with grease and she just like no we don't use the oven and and it kind of begged the question why and I suppose for me it was a case of well just because we don't use it doesn't mean that it's a rule that I have to follow. Uh, We need to mention that you won the sixth series of the Great British Bake Off in 2015. Uh, I gather getting you to actually enter it uh, was a chore. Your husband pushed you towards it and you ended up winning it. How did you actually steal yourself to to show up and, and do it? Well, I hadn't, like, it wasn't something that I ever wanted to do. It was my husband that actually put the application. He kept, we'd watch Bake Off together and he'd say, oh, you've made that, but yours definitely looked better or I bet yours tasted better. So he would make comments and I wouldn't really pay any heed to them. And then one day he just said, so, you know, I've just done this application form um, and I've done all the boring bits, but I can't actually do the actual baking questions. So do you want to just do this? And I said, wait, this is for Bake Off. I'm not doing this. And, And he kind of he did sit me down and say, look, you've kind of spent eight, nine years at home raising the children. I've been able to do really well in my own career. And I'm just desperate for you to be able to do something without me and without the kids. Before you know it, I've done three telephone interviews, six months worth of baking and screen tests. And then suddenly I get this call saying, you've made it into the final 12. And I remember being completely overwhelmed and said to my husband, I'm not doing it. You're going to have to tell him I died. That's that's the only option we have. And he said, no, you ring them and tell him you died. <laughs> and I was like, well, that doesn't work, does it? And then it was like, just do it. What's the worst that's going to happen? And my husband said to me, whatever you do, though, don't get kicked out week one because that would be so embarrassing. I'm like, oh, great. Who even says that? <laughs> who even says that? Honestly. And then you end up baking uh, Queen Elizabeth's 90th birthday cake. Uh, so it's an orange drizzle cake with orange curd and orange buttercream. Is this something that the royal family specifically requested or it was up to you to cook any kind of cake you wanted? Well, what's funny is that I asked for direction and they said, we don't care. You just do whatever you like, uh, which I was like, well... What if she hates oranges? I mean, that's orange heavy. But bearing in mind, I never saw her actually ever eat any cake. But then I don't think anyone has ever seen the Queen ever physically eat anything. Good point. Weirdly, I took direction from my little girl who at the time was five, I'm going to say. And I said, so what do you think I should bake the Queen? And she said, oh, that you've already baked for the Queen. And I said, no, I haven't baked for the Queen. And she said, yes, you have. Mary Berry's the Queen. And I was like, oh. Mary Berry is the queen of cake. The queen is the queen of England. So she said, well, you made Mary Berry a lemon drizzle, so you could just make her something with oranges. And I kind of took that literally, and that's exactly what I did. So I took <laughs> advice from my five-year-old who thinks the queen of England is just a old lady in a very big house. Um, one of the things I love about your cookbook is you have influences from all over the world. I mean, uh, Lebanon, you know, you have those sort of meat pies. We have, uh, Japan, you know, matcha or hurricane rolls, Scotland, uh, jam roly poly. You have all these influences you put together successfully. 
But the way you mix and match uh, is more advanced, I think, than in many other books. I- any comments on, on why that's your approach? You know, I'm always kind of collecting this back catalogue of recipes that I love and that I create at home based on recipes that I've tasted around the world. But I think, you know, being British and being Bangladeshi, uh, growing up with that kind of struggle, that fight between the two cultures, what happened was I kind of created my own grey area where I think lots of us sit. And and I mean, I shouldn't call it a grey space. It should be a colourful rainbow unicorn space. And that's exactly what it is for me because, you know, it is important to create that space for yourself. You, you do a, a Bangladesh cake, a shinny cake. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it properly. Yeah. Could you describe what, what that is? That is one of my favourite things to make. So it's a toasted flour cake which is made with equal amounts of butter sugar and water and then you keep mixing it till you get this gorgeous sweet toasted kind of batter to me it's a soft spiced fudge that's what it tastes like and you just literally just throw it onto a plate and everybody gets their hands in and they pinch and take pieces of it while it's still hot I wanted to make my version of it in a small kind of bunt tin so that was where kind of Bangladesh meets Britain for me. You know, I've done a lot of brownie recipes in my time and mm-hmm. thought I had some pretty good recipes. This one is better. You want to discuss it? It's money can't buy you happiness brownies. Let's face it. Everybody is on the quest for the best brownie. It's such a simple thing, but it can go so wrong. It should be chocolatey. It should be fudgy, yet gooey soft yet firm and this brownie is exactly all of those things but it is topped with a dolce de leche roasted hazelnut layer and then on top of that it's got a really simple thin layer of orange cheesecake Mm. they are money can't buy you happiness brownies or what my daughter likes to call turn your frowny upside downy brownie (laughs) she's gonna have a literary (laughs) career it's obvious yeah Um, yeah yeah yeah, that that caught my eye um you do a marshmallow buttercream. Yeah. You actually use marshmallows. Yeah. Which seems a whole lot easier. How do you make a marshmallow buttercream with marshmallows? For me, as much as I love making marshmallows from scratch, it's something that I would very rarely do. And you'd have to be pretty special to get me to make marshmallows from scratch for you. And so just to be able to step back and say, actually, let's go backwards. Let's take ready-made marshmallow. Let's melt that down. Let's cool it down. Let's add butter to it. Let's add icing sugar to it. And let's make it a delicious, rich marshmallow fluff buttercream. It's about making recipes easy for people. As much as I love making a marshmallow, I'm, I'm a big fan of cheating and there's nothing wrong with it. Let's assume you don't bake or you don't bake much. Someone doesn't. And they called you up and said, look, uh, I got to throw something together for Saturday night, having people over. Is there something either out of your book or not, that's really easy to put together and something that's good for a beginning baker? Absolutely. I think if I was going to pick one recipe from the book, for me, it would be the croissant bread pudding. Because what I love about bread and butter pudding is that it has everything all in one. You've got the custard, you've got the bread, buttered bread, you've got fruit, you've got a little bit of everything all baked in one. But what I really love about this recipe, because it is all about cheating. And remember, we're allowed to cheat in food, (laughs) but you take ice cream, And you melt the ice cream down because essentially a bread and butter pudding is a custard and an ice cream is a frozen custard. So I kind of worked backwards and thought, well, why can't I just use melted ice cream? Because that's exactly the same thing. And now you see how my mind works, right? It kind of works. It's a weird way of working, but it works for me. 
Well, you work backwards. Yeah, I, I always yeah, I do weirdly of. work backwards. Yeah. Backward baking. That's it. <laughs> that's the next book. That's yeah. the next one. Is your family completely sick and tired of you baking all the time or they just can't wait till you come up with your next recipe? Well, when I'm recipe testing, I am like a woman possessed. I spend about two months at home just testing, testing, testing. And so they could wake up to shrimp for breakfast and cake for dinner. But they don't complain. They don't complain. But I've got to say, on an evening when they come back from school, they kind of walk through the door and they go past seven, eight different dishes, cakes, starters, main dishes, you name it, all laid out there. And they go straight for the fruit bowl and say, you're all right, mum, we just have an apple. <laughs> it's like, really? Nadi, it's been fun and, and just a great honor having you on Milk Street. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. That was Nadia Hussein. Her cookbook is Nadia Bakes. You know, I was intrigued when Nadia mentioned that she had baked a three-tiered orange drizzle cake. It looked like something Salvador Dali might have painted for Queen Elizabeth's 90th birthday. And when asked what the queen said to her, the humdrum answer was, quote, which tier do I cut? Which makes me wonder if the royal family is a bit less interesting than my two local fishmongers, Eddie and Cho. Well, Hello Magazine thinks they are pretty interesting. They reported on the Queen's diet, cereal, yogurt, toast, and marmalade for breakfast, Dover sole and spinach for lunch, cucumber sandwiches for tea, fish pate at dinner with a slice of chocolate perfection pie for dessert. So I say we need a new upper class, those among us who are skilled at the art of conversation. You know, I once asked a nine-year-old Vermonter where Maple Street was. He looked at me curiously and said slowly, you're standing right on it. Now, that's my idea of royalty. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, plum cake with spiced almond crumble. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, I have a problem. You would indicate <laughs> I probably have dozens of them. But when you do a cake with fruit and crumble, you have to get all three components just right. Because the crumble can be too sweet, it can overtake the cake itself, the fruit gets lost, etc. So we came across a recipe by Greg and Lucy Malouf in a book called Sukar, which solved the problem of getting the three components in just the right mix. It sure did. So this cake is pretty much about the crumble. We did a lot of work with the crumble to get it just right. And as you said, it's kind of a hard thing to do, surprisingly, to get it all nicely balanced with the cake and the fruit. The crumble is toasted almonds, butter, brown sugar, some really great spices, cardamom, coriander, allspice. That all gets mixed together by hand. And then we pop it in the freezer. And this was a trick that we learned from the book. And what that does is if you keep it at room temperature and then put it on top of the cake, as soon as it hits the oven, that butter starts to melt. So you're losing a lot of that crumble as the butter melts into the cake. You're left with mostly just the toasted almonds on the top. Hmm. So this allows us a little bit more time before that starts to happen. So you get a really nice layer of crumble. What about the fruit? Because it's really nice to have the fruits a little bracing. You know, it's not just sweet on sweet. How do you do that? The cake itself, it's a basic sort of 9 by 13 kind of sheet cake. Has a little bit of almond extract in it, some sour cream. But then instead of mixing that fruit into the cake itself, we sliced the plums and kind of layer them on top of the cake. So you get a really nice punch of that sweet but slightly acidic fruit when you bite into the cake. Baking is just a typical 350 oven? 
The temperature is typical. The way it's baked is not. And this was another thing we learned from the book. You bake the cake for 30 minutes without the crumble on top first. Mm. Then you take the cake out and put the crumble on. And we were having a lot of trouble with sort of the crumble kind of melting into the cake and becoming one with the cake. (laughs) And we wanted those distinct layers. And this was a way to do that. And it was really, really cool idea, something we hadn't seen before, and really allowed us to have those very distinct layers of crumble, fruit, and cake. Well, thanks to Greg and Lucy Maloof, we learned a couple of things. The crumble should be frozen first, and then only put it on halfway through baking, and you get that perfect division between crumble, (laughs) cake, and fruit. Lynn, thank you very much. Plum cake with spiced almond crumble. You're welcome. You can get this recipe for plum cake with spiced almond crumble at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik asks, what's in a dessert's name? We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Malt and I will be answering a few more of your baking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Olivia from Cleveland, Ohio. Hi, Olivia. How can we help you today? Like many people, I have been baking a lot more over the last year, and it's just me and my parents, so we end up with a lot of leftovers. And originally, I'd been storing the leftovers in a Tupperware on the counter, but I realized that they were retaining a lot of moisture and getting almost gummy after a few days. And it was worse with things like muffins or biscuits. And so recently, I've been using a cotton dish towel and wrapping up the baked goods and leaving that on the counter. But with that method, the baked goods dry out much faster. And so I was wondering, is there some sort of happy medium way to store baked goods where they don't end up too moist and they don't end up too dry? Yes. First of all, muffins freeze well. Those kind of quick breads freeze well. And, you know, freeze them as soon as you can after you've baked them, after they've cooled off. But in terms of leaving them, absolutely the best place to leave them is at room temperature in Tupperware or, you know, whatever closed container and sort of a cross between what you were doing. Put a sheet of paper towel in there on top of them. Okay. That should absorb enough of the excess moisture to keep them the way you want them to be. Chris, you have any thoughts? Oh, yeah. I ain't freezing my muffins. Look, if I make some banana muffins or something, I want instant gratification on day two. I don't want to have to go reheat them. So what we've done recently, which really works well, is you get a cake stand. We bought a glass cake stand with a dome top, and we put that on the counter in the kitchen. And we have lots of, you know, how much banana bread we baked in the last year, I can't count. But cookies, banana breads, donuts, whatever, pretzels. Uh, We put that on the cake stand, and it's beautiful because it's glass. It also means you eat more because every time you go by, it's staring at you. But I think it really works well because there's enough air in there, so they're not going to get moist like in a small container, but they're also not going to get dried out. That's my new thing is a glass cake stand with a dome top, and I get to look at it 
25 times a day, which is... Well, then for those of us who can't resist, we get into trouble. Yeah, it does. You know, those chocolate chip cookie piles diminish quickly. Oh, geez. Yeah. I think you want a large volume in the storage area, which I think gives you the balance between soggy and dried out. No, that makes complete sense. You know, there's more air for the moisture to evaporate in. Yeah. Good idea. Except for those of us who can't resist. It wouldn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Well, I like guilty pleasures. Well, again, as I remarked many times, Chris, if I was 6'2 and a skinny bean, I'd eat anything I wanted to. Did you just call me a skinny bean? <laughs> Is that what you call Yes. Me? You haven't seen me in a year, though, i got to tell you. Maybe, oh, I haven't. Maybe this I know. not true anymore. This is true. Anyway, <laughs> Olivia, Olivia, thank you. Yes. Yeah. Good yeah, question. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> Take care. Thanks. Have a good one. This is Milk Street Radio. If you want to improve your baking skills, give us a call. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Matt from Baltimore, Maryland. Hi, Matt. How can we help you today? I am having the darndest time with no-need breads. I've tried several times Jim Leahy no-need bread and other variations of it. Every time I make it, the crust is thick and hard, and the inside is somehow (laughs) both gummy and overbaked. It's just a disaster every time. I'm using a six-quart enamel Dutch oven with a lid, and maybe that's too big, but help, please. (laughs) Well, let me ask you a a few questions. You weigh your ingredients, I assume. Weigh my ingredients, instant yeast, I'd say fairly fresh. Okay, so when you do this, when you're giving it the 16 hours, are you looking for the visuals that he tells you, um, the bubbles on top of the dough? I'm looking for the growth. Typically, it feels like it maybe doubles in size. There's always lots of bubbles, and it's very stringy when you try to pour it out of the bowl. Okay, and you give it the second rise, correct? Yes. And you heat the Dutch oven with the lid on in the oven from the beginning, right? Yeah, and the hottest my oven will get is 500. It's supposed to be, I believe, 450, not 500. Oh, okay. And then you put it on the towel, and then you slide it in seam side up, and you put the lid on, and you time it, and then you take the lid off and finish browning it, correct? Yeah, and it always gives a nice rise in the oven, so it comes out in the right shape, but the crust is much thicker than you'd expect, and it feels just hard and callousy and lumpy. Hmm. Well, I remember when Mark Bittman wrote this up from Jim Leahy in the New York Times. I made it a whole bunch of times. I came to the conclusion that it's, I do almost no need bread, because if you need it for like two minutes by hand, the bread is mm-hmm. like 100% better. Ooh. I mean, Jim Leahy has an advantage, which he's dealing with a, a kitchen where there's massive amount of yeast and it's hot. My kitchen's probably 64 degrees and there's no yeast floating around. So I think he gets a tremendous amount of oven spring and other things going on. So my short answer to your long problem is knead the dough before you that second rise. Knead it for two or three minutes by hand. The second thing is I use an instant thermometer to gauge when my bread's done. And a typical American loaf's about 195 But I found this bread, unless you get it like up to 208 it is gummy. So you got to make sure that interior is about 208 Oh, wow. And that should solve the gumminess. Excellent. 
ooh, I'm going to try this out today and tomorrow because it's going to take a long time to raise the uh, the dough. But let us know. Yeah, please let us know. We want to know. Right. I really appreciate the help. Give a shot. Okay. Okay. Take Thank care. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. I almost never buy buttermilk anymore because I've realized that if I mix two ingredients that I almost always have in my fridge, locally made yogurt, a really tangy whole milk yogurt with whole milk um, in about even measures, about half and half, it makes a substitute for buttermilk that is so good and it works really well in recipes and it's always in my fridge so it's really easy. By the way, if you'd like to share your own cooking tip or suggestion on Milk Street Radio, go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's time to find out what Adam Gopnik is thinking about this week. Adam, how are you? I'm well, Chris. How are you? Uh, What pronouncements will be coming down from the Mount today? Well, I actually want to share not my thoughts originally, but my wife's thoughts. I made her the other night that wonderful dessert called rhubarb fool. I'm sure Mm. you've made it often. Stewed rhubarb with a little bit of orange, perhaps a strawberry or two, touch of Grand Marnier, folded into whipped cream. Sometimes I put the Grand Marnier in the whipped cream. Sometimes I put it in the rhubarb puree. Obviously, sugar in the rhubarb puree to cut the sour and bitter taste. It's a wonderful dessert, and it's her all-time favorite dessert. And she turned to me and said, why is rhubarb fool called rhubarb fool? Now, I actually happen to know the answer for that, though it's a delightful name. I knew it came from the French word foulet, to fold, right? It's a thing you fold the cream into the rhubarb. But fool is such a beautiful word. She was right. And as she ate her rhubarb fool, she turned to me and said, why do desserts have such deliciously silly names? There's not just fool, there's mess at a local restaurant about as far removed from England as anything could possibly be. They serve eaten mess. Eaten mess, yes. Everywhere you go, we know, I think we've discussed in various times, the endlessly amusing differences, if any, exist between the crisp, the crumble, and the cobbler. The same thing extends even into the seemingly soberer precincts of French cuisine. As you know, French uh, main dishes, entrees, almost always have very sober descriptive names, or at most they have an historical name associated with a particular place. Poulet Marengo is associated with the Battle of Marengo and so on. But French desserts have either uh, local names or odd names. Uh, Croquenbush, for instance, Profiterole, my favorite French dessert, those cream puffs with vanilla ice cream and chocolate sauce. Do you know from whence their name derives? I have no idea. It comes from Rabelais, the great... French comic writer who used the word meaning little mountains to reference the cream puffs. Hmm. Probably the biggest revolution in taste, at least in modern Western history, was the moment in the 18th century when because of the discovery and the broad use, because it got cheaper, of refined sugar, dessert suddenly got expelled off into a separate course. As you know, Chris, before then, sweet tastes and savory tastes were mixed on every plate, as they still are, say, in North African cuisine. You had apricots and lamb together. You had sweet tastes of honey and the savory tastes of meats all on one plate with no conception that you would have something separate, distilled out and sweet, put off on 
one side. That began to happen in the 18th century, that the whole meal, so to speak, tipped over, and you began to have that sweet course, sugar-based course, that we think of as dessert. And indeed, when you're making rhubarb fool, one of the things that impresses you is how much sugar you have to put into the rhubarb in order to make it foolish. If you try to just to eat stewed rhubarb alone, it's almost close to inedible. And so, in a curious way, our taste for playful or foolish names attached to dessert is an unconscious cultural trace, if you like, of that business of jettisoning off one course, the sweet course, to be a thing onto itself. Something like the dance after the end of a six-act tragedy in Shakespeare. Something like the recess in a school day. And we instinctively, therefore, adhere to that moment, a foolish name. Well, it's interesting that most of the world doesn't do that, though, right? I mean, dessert is very European. Totally uh, so, yep. Yeah, and the other thing is it's so interesting is in Boston, it was actually late 19th century by the time sugar got cheap, but they'd have stores which had nothing but sugar confections. So sugar became architectural, right? Yes. It was spun, it was created into palaces. It became an art form, which is, I think, quite different than most savory dishes, not all. But sugar was, as you said, playful, but they actually played with it. Yes, that's right. And you can find that in aristocratic circles earlier in the 19th century, you know, around the time of Carême, when we talk about spun sugar confections. And in fact, some of those spun sugar palaces that got invented then later got imitated in World's Fairs and so on. So you have a whole kind of confectioner aesthetic. That's exactly right. And it is an oddity of our cooking style that we hive dessert off to a separate place. We make messes and crumbles and crisps and cobblers, profiteroles from Rabelais. We make croquembouches. We make clafoutis. And that vocabulary of playfulness is a sign of that special role. What strikes me as probably very likely is that that may be coming to an end, because one of the things I note is that the women in my life have now what they often call, with a note of whimsical irony, girl desserts, which means locale desserts. And all of those desserts, I don't know if you've noticed, have virtuous names. They don't have comic names at all. They're called enlightened or halo. The names of those virtuous low-calorie desserts always evoke self-righteous, indeed sanctimonious, pursuit of higher state. And in that moment, I think, we may see passing away the long history of jollity in dessert making. Adam, thank you very much. You've sorted out another philosophical quandary. Thank you. Delighted to do it. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our TV show, or order our latest cookbook, Tuesday Night's Mediterranean. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producers, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tereski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. And production help from Debbie Paddock. 
Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.